Um, yeah, like Bill said, uh, we've been taking the summer months, uh, and we considered September part of the summer months because typically it is in Southern California, although the past couple days you wouldn't know it. Um, but we've been uh, taking each month to look at a different practice or a different rhythm, different tool in our tool belt for growing to become the kind of women and men that God's made us to be in the power of the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Bill. And uh, this, this um, month we're looking at generosity um, before I dive into it, I, I want to say real quick, fall is quickly upon us, and uh, one of our bread and butter rhythms for doing life together, uh, at least in the adult side of our church, are our grounded groups. These are groups that meet in homes around uh, the South Bay, and uh, those groups will be getting started up again here this fall, and if you are looking for a place to connect, uh, we would love to help you get connected if you're, if you're not yet connected to a grounded group. Uh, there's not the sum total of the relational connectivity of the church, but they're a really great rhythm to, to begin getting into it. Um, you can email info at riversouthbay.org uh, if you are interested in getting into group or would like to start a group uh, for yourself and your own kind of network of friends. Uh, we've got a few starting up, so we could get you in a pre-existing group. We can also get you in a group that's uh, starting for the first time uh, if you're interested in that. We've got uh, groups and and then new groups in pretty much every stage of adult life from college-aged, kind of younger working people, young families, uh, up into more established folks. And so uh, we'd love to get you you connected with your people. Um, So that being said, uh, we are going to be looking at Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 21. Uh, So if you got your own Bible, you can uh, open up there or you want to pull it up on your phone, whatever the case may be. Um, I'm going to read. Uh, I'll, I'll pray and, and guide us into praying, asking uh, the Spirit of God to speak to us as we open up, uh, open up his word, and uh, then we will get into it. So Matthew chapter 6, uh, verses 19 through 21, these are the words of Jesus uh, in a stretch of teaching recorded in the Gospel of Matthew that we call the Sermon on the Mount. It's kind of smack dab in the middle of it, and here's what Jesus says in uh, verses 19 to 21. We'll start with 19, Jesus' words. Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust uh, destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. That's God's word for us this morning. Spoken by Jesus, written down by the gospel writer Matthew in his own language and style and context, but inspired by the Spirit of God. And every time God, uh, every time we open up God's Word, God has something to say to us. So let's go ahead and pray. Let's ask God to speak to us, and uh, we'll we'll dive into it. Would you guys pray with me? Lord, uh, we're so grateful for your grace, and we want to hear from you. We pray this morning, um, sitting in this room. Um, with whatever we're bringing into this morning, wherever we're at in relationship to you, whether these words are really familiar, we've been walking with you for a while, whether we're not sure what to make of any of this. um, I pray, God, that you would give a fresh word for every single one of us, something from you, God, that would be for us applied to our hearts by your spirit. So we pray for that. And let's take some time right now. Uh, Each one of us, just a moment of quiet, and in our own words, whatever words make sense to us, let's invite God to speak to us from his word. Maybe it's just as simple as saying, God, would you speak to me right now? Whatever, whatever makes sense for you, let's just take a moment of quiet to open ourselves up to hear from God. Would you speak, Lord? 
Thank you for your grace that makes this safe to come to your word openly and vulnerably and let you say whatever you have to say to us. And um, God, we want to not just have information in our heads, but transformation in our hearts. So we pray for that, Lord. And we ask, come Holy Spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, you know the story on the generosity sermon. Or at least, if you're not familiar with church, maybe this is all new for you, you can at least put the pieces together on why the room might feel a little bit more tense than usual as soon as the topic of generosity comes up. Here's how the script usually goes. Someone teaches on how scripture calls us to be generous. They open up God's word and say, look, here doesn't it say, call us to be generous. And then the shoe drops right? The big ask is presented. There's an urgent need, usually applied with as much hot sauce as possible, and it's laid on thick as can be. And then a certain percentage of the community uh, contributes financially to the cause. And then what? And then what? That's the question I've been asking myself as I think about the way that generosity is usually framed in a community like ours, usually framed in many of the experiences that we've been in, or at least that we imagine if this is all new to us, it's usually framed in terms of meeting a need. And to be sure, I want to be really clear, there is no problem whatsoever. It is entirely appropriate for followers of Jesus with a passion for a cause that's close to God's heart to invite other followers of Jesus to contribute to that cause that is close to God's heart. Personally, cards on the table. I was a missionary for many years, raised a lot of money for the ministry that we were doing. So I've been this guy, right? I've been the one inviting others to give towards the cause. I've been invited to give towards many causes and none of, none of which was a bad thing for me to be asked to give to those causes. But I wonder if framing generosity primarily in terms of meeting needs falls short of Jesus's purpose for generosity. Because I wonder what happens when we write a check because the need is presented to us, and then what? Are we any different for having written the check? Are we a person of any more love and faith and hope for having given the check? And if we're not, is that really what God is after in generosity in the first place? I have a sneaking suspicion that it's not. And so as we come to our passage in Matthew chapter 6, I want us to ask, what if Jesus' way of generosity was not only about meeting needs, but also about who we're becoming? What if he's inviting us to consider how our relationship with our resources today is shaping who we become tomorrow? What if God cares so much about our eternal joy and his eternal glory that his invitation to live generously is actually about shaping us into the woman or man that we were always meant to be? What if Jesus is after a whole lot more than just getting us to write a check? What if he cares about us? What if he cares about his glory worked out in us for our joy? And I, one of the questions I've been asking myself for a long time with this particular passage interpretively about what Jesus is after, what is he telling us here in this little teaching in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, interpretively, the question I've been asking is, when Jesus talks about treasure, in this passage, and he uses that term treasure, he also uses a verb version of it, of treasuring. Is he talking about what we most treasure in our hearts, as in what we most love, what we consider to be the most beautiful and valuable and good? Or is he talking about our literal treasure? Because if you actually look up these words that are used, we translate treasure in Greek, they're something else, you don't care. But if you look up those words, and you look about how the writers of the New Testament use those words, it could take you in either direction. 
It could take you in the literal treasure of my wallet sense, or it could take you to the treasure of my heart sense. And so I've been sitting for a long time. What is Jesus really after in this passage? And um, as James would tell you, who's not in the room, he's over serving with River Kids, but he teaches a class on spiritual formation on Biola, which includes learning to interpret scripture well. One of the things he would tell you is that when it comes to interpreting scripture, context is king. So what's the context? Well, right before this teaching, Jesus has just offered this critique against religious hypocrisy. And the issue, he says, with religious hypocrisy in this series of teachings on how we might go about doing good things but for the wrong reasons is that these folks that he has in mind, this religiously hypocritical way of approaching life and life with God, is seeking the wrong things. It's treasuring the wrong things. In this case, treasuring being seen as the right sort of person. So Jesus has this line in that series of teaching where he says, I tell you, the religious hypocrites have received their reward. In other words, they got what they were after. People thought, oh, good for them, pat you on the back, you did a great job, good for you, you're the right sort of person. And he says, that was a misplaced treasure, to use the language of this passage here. On the other hand, right after this particular series of verses that we've looked at, and this is, about another, this is attached to another group of teachings, where Jesus takes this, the crescendo of this line of thinking, is Jesus' very famous line where he says, you cannot serve both God and money. And so the context before and the context after are taking you into two very different directions. Here's what I make of that. I think the appropriate way to approach this, ta- this passage is to put both lenses onto this passage. I think Jesus is a master teacher. I think the gospel writer Matthew is a master writer, and they're weaving these different layers of context for us to go to both places, to view this passage both through the lens of what do I treasure in my heart and through the lens of what do I do with the treasure of my wallet. I think Jesus wants, to, wants us to consider both. And when you put both lenses on, I think what we see is something very interesting because I think that bookend of context pulls us to reflect on both and when we, put, uh, when we think simultaneously about what we treasure and what we do with our treasure, what we value and what we do with our valuables, I think that duality is intentional because it takes us to a key principle of generosity that Jesus wants us to see. This is how we'll spend the rest of our time. I think Jesus is showing us in this text that what we treasure internally shapes what we do instinctually, what just comes out of us. And what we do intentionally, on purpose, shapes what we treasure internally. And that was, I know that was really writerly, so I'll say, I'll say it again. What we treasure internally shapes what we do instinctually, and what we do intentionally shapes what we treasure internally. It's both. It's what comes out of the heart because of what we treasure, and it's the way that what we do shapes what we treasure in the first place. So we'll spend the rest of our time talking about it. We'll look at both both sides of that coin. We'll start with what we treasure internally shapes what we do instinctually. Jesus is telling us, he's taking us to consider the things that we treasure. He says, uh, don't lay up treasure on earth because moth and rust destroy, thieves come in and steal. But lay up treasure in heaven, because there are no moths, there are no thieves. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So Jesus is assuming, if we put, the, we put on the lens of treasure of our heart, he's assuming that each one of us treasure something. 
whether we are aware of it or not, whether it's identified or not, whether it's written down in a life mission statement or not, and it's probably not, but just in the operating principle of our lives, each one of us has something or a set of things that are what we find most true and beautiful and valuable. They're what we, whether we would use the language or not, consider worth giving our whole lives to. It's what we treasure. The language of scripture outside of this teaching in, in, in the language of Jesus would be what we worship. And uh, a, a writer columnist at The Atlantic, a guy named Derek Thompson, he put it like this in an article where he was exploring the ways that worshiping, treasuring our work, our career, our status can go wrong. And he put it like this. He said, some people worship beauty, some people worship political identities, other worship their children, but everybody worships something. So here's a secular writer identifying that these issues of what we most value ultimately is a spiritual issue. Everybody worships something. The language of Jesus in our passage is that everyone treasures something. And Jesus is giving to us a framework for considering that we are either treasuring something on earth or we are treasuring something in heaven. Either you treasure something created or you will treasure, some, or you will treasure the creator himself. And Jesus says, don't lay up for yourselves. Don't treasure up for yourselves treasure on earth. Don't treasure something created. Treasure something in heaven. He says, it's not just that we all worship something, it's that there's something we were made to worship. There are certain things that we'd be prone to worship that we weren't made to worship, and if we do, it will go bad. Moths and rust will destroy, thieves will break in and steal. We could all put on our wisdom hat and think of things that would be at least unhealthy for us to worship. In that article, I just referenced that column in the Atlantic where he talks about how everyone worships something. I quoted this a, a, a few weeks ago looking at Sabbath, but he was um, showing the ways that worshiping our work can go wrong because we weren't made to worship it. We weren't made to treasure it. His words are this. He says, but work is tangible and success is often falsifiable. To make either the centerpiece of one's life is to place one's esteem in the mercurial hands of the market. To be a workist, someone who treasures their work, is to worship a God with firing power. When we treasure treasure on earth, when we lay up for ourselves treasure on earth, when we set our hearts what we consider to be most valuable and beautiful and true, something created, it goes wrong. And we can put on our wisdom hats and think of all the different types of things that we could worship that would ultimately, on a long enough timeline, either let us down or that we would crush because it was never meant to carry the weight of those expectations. And in doing so, we're not just saying that there are some things that aren't worthy of treasuring, some things that will go wrong if we treasure it on a long enough timeline. We're also implying that there's something that we were made to treasure, something or someone that we were made to worship. Because doesn't the existence of things we know we ought not worship, things that would go bad if we did worship them, isn't the existence of those things an implication that there is someone or something that we were made to treasure? You know, um, my son, he's two and a half now, about a year ago, he had this phase where he just, every time we would take him to the beach, it was sand right in the mouth. 
as soon as his little booty or his little feet hit the sand, it was help himself to a nice little sand snacko. And I promise you, we fed this kid three meals a day, snacks between every nap time. I promise you we gave this kid what he needed. But every single time we took him to the beach, sand right in the mouth. Or dip the food that we brought, the snacks that we brought to the beach. Dip that in sand just as a little, like, little sprinkle of flavor, you know, and just get a little something extra in there, a little crunchy fiber or whatever the sand properties would be, right into the mouth. And pardon the image here, but you can imagine all the ways that that went wrong in his system. Namely, it would come out on the other end, nice and gritty. We called it the sandpaper dirty diaper. Like it was just, and for reasons that you probably don't need to explain, it was deeply uncomfortable for him. So we were very committed to preventing him, mostly unsuccessfully, from eating sand because sand is not food. Sand is not what his system was made to take in as food and on a long enough timeline, namely one digestive cycle, it would go wrong for him when he did. And in trying to prevent him from eating sand, something that his body was not meant to take in, we weren't just saying, we weren't just implying that sand is not, sand is not what you should put in your body. We're also implying that that's the case because there's something that you should put in your body. We're not, saying, we're not just saying, hey, don't put that in your body. We're saying there's something good for you, something grown on a farm or made from things grown on a farm that's going to taste better than sand. I have no idea what the appeal of sand was, just like a little bit of like, I don't know, like seagull poo flavor and dirty flip-flops, just mm-hmm, that cleanses the palate. I don't know. But in implying that one thing was not what his body was meant to take in, or saying that one thing was not what his body was meant to take in, we're also saying that there's something he was meant to take in. So it's not just that we can identify things that we, we ought not build our lives around. It's that there is something, namely our creator God, treasure in heaven, he who is in heaven, who we were made to treasure, who we were made to build our lives around, who we were made to consider most beautiful and true and good. And Jesus says, when we see this, when we build our lives around God, because we see him as our greatest treasure, it changes everything. The, uh, the great fourth century theologian, Augustine of Hippo, put it like this. He said, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. God himself is the true treasure. And here's where the rubber meets the road for who we're becoming. It's having heavenly treasure. It's seeing God himself and everything that he is for us in Jesus to be the true treasure that drives inner transformation to be who we were always meant to be. Because in verse 21, Jesus closes up this line of thought saying this. He says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Your inner self, your will, your character, your thoughts, the narrative that you attach to your life, All of that is shaped by what you most treasure. And in Jesus' words, and in the writers of the New Testament's frame of mind, what happens in our heart shapes how we actually live. Uh, Jesus put it like this in in, uh, Matthew 12, verse 34. He said, for out uh, out of an abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So it's from our inner self that our instinctual actions just come out. And Jesus is saying, shape that inner self so that goodness, love, beauty come out of you because what you've treasured is me. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be. And where your heart is, that's what will come out of you instinctually. If we want to be who we were made to be, we have to evaluate what we treasure. 
what we consider, whether we would be able to articulate it clearly up to this moment before or not, what we considered to be the most beautiful and good and true. And so let's put the other lens on here. Because this passage is not only drawing us to consider what we, what we treasure generally, but also our relationship with our resources specifically. And if we evaluate, uh, so therefore we have to evaluate our relationship with our resources. In other words, we have to evaluate not only what we treasure generally, but the ways in which our actual resources, the things that God has given us, the ways in which those things might become a treasure for us, or the reasons that those things uh, might be appealing as a substitute treasure for us, why we're drawn to them as a substitute treasure in the first place. In my early 20s, um, I, I asked a mentor for some advice on setting a budget, some financial stuff, kind of an older, wiser guy. Just give me some input. How have you, how have you been wise with your finances? And he uh, encouraged me not just to put together a budget, but he encouraged me to really consider my default relationship with my money to evaluate and deconstruct why is money important to you specifically? What do you hope that you'll get out of money? Of course, we all need resources to survive, to provide for our families. All that is good. It's not just that it's okay, it's good. Todd unpacked that last week. I'll have more to say on that in a bit. But why is your heart drawn to money specifically? What specifically is appealing uh, about your resources that would make it a potential counterfeit treasure in your heart. And that, uh, this question that uh, the mentor asked me has kind of set me on like a years-long you know, process, evaluation, and search in the scriptures for the ways that scripture reveals how money can become a counterfeit treasure or the reasons that each of us might be drawn to money as a potential uh, or tempting counterfeit treasure in the first place to evaluate our default relationship with our resources. I think scripture has some really insightful either teachings or narrative flows that reveal the different ways that we might be drawn to money as a counterfeit treasure. I think here's a, a big one is uh, money as significance. And I say significance purposely because that's kind of a value-neutral term. It's good to want significance. And money is a great tool but a, a terrible treasure. And so uh, many, of us have, many of us have a default relationship with money as money as significance. So for some of us, uh, when we think of the money that we earn or the money that we have, we think of it as saying something about our value or the ability to buy certain things or certain experiences says something about our value. I'll give you an example in, the, in Scripture. In the New Testament, uh, when the New Testament teaches on modesty, about how we dress, the overwhelming thing that, uh, or the overwhelming focus of the teaching on modesty in the New Testament is not about how revealing our clothes are. It's about ostentatious displays of wealth. It's not just about, it's not primarily about how much skin we're showing. It's about what we're displaying in the, in, the, in the types of wealth messaging we're sending in our clothing. And it's calling us to be modest and not be ostentatiously, not ostentatiously flashy in the way that we dress. Why? Because for some of us, money or the ability to buy things with our money is about our significance. We think it says something about us. But Jesus says, do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth because rust and moth destroy and thieves can break in. 
it'll go bad for us in a long enough timeline. About a year ago, I was uh, at a dinner with a group of friends and acquaintances, and I was sitting next to a guy who's an acquaintance, someone that I uh, don't know super well, but we ended up having a really deep conversation. Admittedly, on his end, the conversation was particularly deep because he was a few in. However, never that we were still in a deep conversation, so praise God, I don't know. But um, we ended up having this really deep conversation where he was uh, sharing with me some places in his life where he felt pretty unsatisfied. And his story is uh, he's a guy around my age, quickly climbing the ladder at a very big investment bank, being very successful, has made a lot of money, and done very well for, well for himself in his career. And there was this really vulnerable moment where he said something that about a half an hour later, I went to the bathroom and wrote down, because it was really profound, but he said this. Uh, he said, I feel like in my life, I'm solving for this vague concept of prestige but every time I've gotten a new benchmark, I'm no happier for it. Money was about significance. And on a long enough timeline, when we lay up treasure on earth, it will leave us cold or will crush it. But God himself and everything he is for us in Jesus is our true treasure. And his love is our true significance. Lay up treasure in heaven. Some of us, money's about security. So for us, our default relationship with our resources has nothing to do with with our significance. It's about feeling safe. We think that if we're, if we're going to be secure, we have to have enough. And enough almost always means more. And if we have more, then we'll be really safe. Todd talked last week about Jesus's parable in Luke chapter 12 about the man who wanted to build a bigger barn. And one of the things we saw, see in that parable is there is absolutely nothing wrong with a barn. In fact, that's too weak of a way to put it. The Proverbs are full of wisdom for investing wisely and saving shrewdly. Like, it's, it's not just that it's not bad to have a barn. It's actively good to have a barn. It's actively good to save up, to invest, to want to, to want to have a financial safety net. And yet, the man in the parable's problem was that he thought he would be more safe if he had a bigger barn, if he built another one. That out of his abundance, he would build a bigger barn because he wanted to feel safe. And the crescendo of the passage is God coming to him, and this is, you know, it's kind of salty because it's a story meant to drive home a point, but his salty statement is, you fool, your life is required of you this night. He was no safer for having built a bigger barn. He was no more safe from tragedy or the realities of a broken world. But God himself and everything that he is for us in Jesus is our true treasure. And his gracious provision and his mysterious plan to work all things together for the good of those who love him is our true security. Lay up treasure in heaven. Some of us, money's about freedom. This is the deal for me. It could be freedom from uh, feeling stress or anxious about money. That's my deal. It's a little different than security. It's not that I want to feel safe. It's that I don't want to feel stressed. I don't want to feel limited by financial realities. That's my default relationship with money. Some of us, it's about freedom to experience things. We want to get out and do things. We want to go live our lives. We don't want money to hold us back from that. But from some of us, money is freedom. Uh, in Jesus' story of the two sons, the younger son goes to his father, and he, he demands uh, an inheritance early. He's like, Father, I don't want to wait till you die before I get your money. I want your money now. The father obliges his, you know, whatever the first century equivalent of, you know, emptying out the 401k early was. I don't know, but he gives him, a, he gives him his inheritance early. And, um, 
and the son uses it to go on like the first century world tour. So whatever the first century equivalent of like being in the south of France is, he's there. Whatever the first century equivalent of Vegas is, he's there. Whatever the first century equivalent of Thailand or the Maldives or however you pronounce it, whatever it is, like he's there. Now, there was nothing wrong with going and experiencing great things in God's creation. Uh, in fact, that's part of the beauty of God's creation. His problem was that he was rejecting the father and he was using the father's resources apart from the father rather than in partnership with the father. But his default relationship with his father's stuff, the resources, was about freedom. Now, I would point out that it's an insufficient definition of freedom because the younger son's definition of freedom, like the default definition of freedom I think we have in a place like South Bay, the South Bay, is that freedom is freedom from boundaries. There are no boundaries. There are no limits. I think what scripture would draw us to see is that true freedom is freedom to flourish within the limits that we were created for. The same way that a fish is truly free when it lives in water, we are truly free when we live within the conditions that God has made us for, a relationship with him. That's another sermon for another day, but many of us have a default relationship with money as freedom. And experiencing the goodness of God's creation is a good thing, and money can be a helpful tool to do that in partnership with God and under, uh, uh, under his wisdom and the principles and vision that he has for life set up in his kingdom. But even the best experiences in the world can't carry the weight of our souls. And even if we have more options available to us than the person sitting next to us, none of us can escape the realities of limits in our life. But God himself and everything that he is for us in Jesus is our true treasure, and relationship with him is our true freedom. And what we treasure internally shapes what we do instinctually. So we're invited to experience the abundant life of Jesus, to become who we were always meant to be, to evaluate what we treasure, to evaluate the treasure of our hearts, and to evaluate the ways that our literal treasure might, be, might become a counterfeit treasure of our hearts in the process. But also, not only do what we treasure internally shapes what we do instinctually, what we do intentionally, on purpose, in this context with our resources, shapes what we treasure internally. It actually shapes our hearts. So it's not just that there's something in us, something that we experience or love or see as valuable and beautiful and true in us that, that, that results in a life coming out of us. We also, in our habits, in the environment of our lives, in what we do intentionally, can shape what we actually treasure in the first place. Because this line where Jesus closes this teaching in verse 21, where he says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be, is, is a statement of being able to shape your heart. And so if we put the lens of our literal treasure onto this statement, which again, I think both lenses are in view. If we put that lens on it, what Jesus is saying is don't just, it's not just what you most valuable, value, it's what you do with your value, valuables. Where you put your treasure, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. There's something about what we can do the plan that we can create with our resources, and it's a holistic plan, as Todd talked about last week, a plan to take care of ourselves, to take care of our families, to experience good things in God's creation, a plan to give it away to others and, close, and causes that are close to God's heart, a holistic plan of, from a posture of generosity, intentional generosity, that can actually shape the way that we experience our true identity in the love of God. 
can actually shape the degree to which we treasure him as our truest treasure. The overwhelming, I said this earlier, the overwhelming uh, emphasis of the relationship between the heart and our actions in the New Testament is this, this idea of our actions flowing from our heart. But in this passage, Jesus flips the script. And when there's like a minority flipping of the script, our antennas ought to go up. There's like, okay, there's a special point of emphasis here. And Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. What you do with your resources, what the plan that we have for the stuff that God's given us is going to shape our very hearts, our internal life, our desires and affections. In other words, our instinctual actions, what we do without thinking flows from our hearts, but we can act on purpose in a way that shapes our hearts. The the philosopher uh, James K. Smith, he put it like this. He said, the orientation of the heart happens from the bottom up through the formation of our habits of desire. Learning to love God takes practice. In other words, love for God, it's something that is sparked by the Spirit of God when we encounter grace, when we see God for who he is. It's cultivated, it's strengthened, it's reinforced in us by the habits that we form, by the actions that we take intentionally. So put another way, you and I are not merely the passive recipients of our desires. We're also the active participants in forming our desires. And this is so important for us to see in the mind of Jesus because in our cultural context, we tend to think of our desires as something that just happened to us. They're this core, innate, immovable thing that we have to discover. So that's why we use the language of finding ourselves. There's something in there, there's a desire in there that's the real me and I have to go in and I have to discover it. I think Jesus would say yes and no. Yes and no. Yes in the sense that To use the language of the book of Ecclesiastes, God has put eternity in our hearts. And there is an ache and a longing for our creator that is innate, a property of being a person. That's a real created desire in the heart of every person with whatever rational ways we can avoid it or ignore it. There's an aching for our creator in the soul of every person. Yes, in the sense that we're the image of God and he's created us each with particular dispositions and personalities and strengths of weaknesses that are on purpose. His specific design for us that he's calling us to live into. And so yes, there is an internal me to discover, but also no, in the sense that our actions today, whatever our actions are, are shaping what my des- our desires will be tomorrow that every choice we make and every habit we form reinforces to ourselves some sort of narrative about what is true and beautiful and good and valuable. What I want today was largely shaped by habits I formed and the environment I was in yesterday. Now that should cause us on the one hand to think really critically about our desires or our instincts, to think about what shaped this? What environment was I in that that formed this? Was it for my good and flourishing? Was it from the spirit of God? Or was it not? On the other hand, this this should free us to think, I can be an active participant in actually experiencing more of the love of God in my life. I can form habits and rhythms today that will shape what I treasure tomorrow. I'm not merely the passive recipient of my desires. I'm also an active participant in forming my desires. 
We see this so clearly in marriage. For example, I am married to Becca. That's like obvious, right? That's my identity. That is a true statement of my relational identity. I'm married to Becca. I can experience the reality of that identity more or less depending on how I choose to live my life. If we prioritize date night, if we prioritize meaningful connection on a daily basis, if I ask meaningful questions about her heart and how she's doing, if we get quality time together, I'm going to experience more of my identity as being married to Becca. I'm going to feel more in love with Becca. If I act romantically, I will feel more romantically for my wife. On the other hand, if I'm passive, if we don't make time to connect meaningfully, if we're two ships passing in the night always, all the time, it's going to be harder to have those internal desires that match the actual re reality of my relational identity. The things we do today can shape our desires tomorrow. And intentionally relating to our resources, the way that Todd talked to us, last week, talked to us about last week, this holistic um, view of bringing our resources into the kingdom of God, taking care of ourselves, taking care of our families, planning for the future, experiencing good things in God's creation, and giving generously, not just from the leftovers, but from our best towards things that are close to God's heart. And doing so intentionally, not just as a rote activity. That shapes our very desires. It's a beautiful example of this um, that we've seen happen in our community over the last recent history. Um, a woman many of us know, Helen Hitzel, um, has gotten involved with the LA Mission. This is uh, a ministry that, uh, that we partner with and a group of people from our church go to serve with. It's a, a program for unhoused folks on Skid Row down in downtown LA. And there's a, a, not long ago, there's a group of folks from our community that went to go serve at the LA Mission. Helen was among them. Uh, and Helen took on a project of preparing utensils for meals that would be served at, uh, at, at the uh, soup kitchen part of the LA Mission. And she realized that the, they actually needed more utensils than what were provided, so she went out and purchased more utensils and practiced an act of generosity, not just with her time, but with, with her resources. Began serving little bits and a little more. And as she took these baby steps of generosity with this cause that is close to God's heart, it built more and more passion for this thing that was close to God's heart. And to hear her tell it, she began to see more and more the beauty and the value of being in with God on this thing. And she ended up becoming really instrumental in making some dramatic improvements to the Women's Center of the LA Mission and has an ongoing kind of serving role with helping make sure the women's side of the LA Mission in particular is really well resourced so those women can have the best experience possible. But what's so important to see is not just the good ministry that came out of it. And it's, that's so worth honoring and so we're celebrating what Helen's doing. It's also important for us to see the way that those baby steps of generosity and the slowly building those habits of generosity formed passion, formed joy, formed alignment with God's heart in Helen's heart. Uh, it was uh, the whole reason I, I was aware of the story as a story to share is because there's a group of gals in our church that were talking about the change they've seen in Helen. And I actually, after the service uh, down at the beach, Helen and I were chatting and she was telling me about how she has experienced more joy, more love for God in getting to participate in what God's doing at the LA Mission as she's begun these practices that have formed more of a desire, more of treasuring eternal treasure, more of treasuring God himself. What we do instinctually is shaped by what we treasure internally. 
but what we treasure internally is shaped by what we do intentionally. And the difference is intentionality. Because you can write a check and be completely unchanged for having written that check. But I think what Jesus is inviting us to move towards is going from being a donor to being a shareholder. Being a shareholder in the kingdom of God. Adding a layer of intentionality, of regularity in the way that we make a plan for our finances. And I'm not just talking about giving to causes. I'm talking about the holistic plan of how we align our heart to our resources with God's heart. And to do so worshipfully with intention. And that's what makes all the difference in the way that we're shaped. So be a shareholder. Be a shareholder in the kingdom of God. In whatever small corner of the kingdom of God that God puts you in, be a shareholder. In your family, be a shareholder. In your little corner of the South Bay, be a shareholder. In our church, be a shareholder. In whatever passions God puts on your heart, whatever dreams and visions that are aligned with God's heart, be a shareholder because what we treasure internally shapes what we do instinctually and what we do with our resources intentionally shapes what we treasure internally and that changes everything. So how do we take the next step? If we see in ourselves a tendency to view our resources as a source of significance or as a source of security or as a source of freedom at the at the deepest level, if it's becoming in some small way a treasure of our hearts, or if we want to be more intentional with the resources that God has given us, how do we take the next step to see God as our true treasure? Well, if we want to see God as our true treasure, I think we have to look at what God has done with his treasure. Because God so loved that he gave. And God didn't just give off the top. He didn't just give what was left over. For my salvation and your salvation, that we might know him, he gave of himself. He gave his best. The creator of the universe, the son, the second person of the Trinity, entered into the human story to reconcile us to our creator. The Apostle Paul in uh, Philippians chapter 2 puts it like this. He says, we see Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When we see Jesus, when we see everything that God is for us in him, when we see in Jesus a God who so loved me and you that he gave, that he entered into the human story so that he might take on the brokenness of the human story, my sin and your sin, onto his own back and that he would carry the weight and guilt of that sin on the cross for my salvation and your salvation, that we could be reconciled to God when we see a God who loves us like that, when we see a God who is generous with his treasure like that, when we see a God who withholds nothing that we would know him, that changes everything. It shows us that he's the one that's worth treasuring. And so right now, as we close, we're going to have some time to reflect on that as we go to the table. We celebrate the Lord's Supper together. We celebrate the Lord's Supper. We're not just doing a rote ritual that you do because you're supposed to do because you're at church. We're declaring ourselves the reality of the gospel. 
We're declaring ourselves a God that so loved he gave, a God that so loved that he entered into the human story, that God the Father sent the Son, that God the Son hung in our place, that the Father and the Spirit grieved and endured the loss of the Son on the cross, the suffering of the Son on the cross. We see a God who, of self-giving love, self-giving love that's personalized to us, self-giving love that overcomes my sin and your sin. Self-given love that's given to us despite the fact that left to our own devices, we all live in, in some way as if we were God's enemies. And that changes everything. So we have a moment now as we, as we celebrate communion and the elements will go around as I pray where we're going to remember the self-giving love, the generous self-giving love given to us in Jesus on our behalf. And as we do, Let's consider how, how God and everything that he is for us in Jesus is our true treasure. He is the one our souls were made for. He's so much better than treasure on earth. And let's consider the ways that we can cultivate seeing that reality in our lives by the way that we live and our relationship with our treasure. So let me pray. And we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper together in a moment. Lord, we love you. And uh, we're so grateful for your grace. God, some of us um, see that you're the true treasure right now, and it's just so clear. And we know that you are so much better than anything else that we could set our hearts on. Some of us are struggling to see that reality. Maybe we see it in theory, but we're struggling to experience it practically. I pray that you would meet every one of us draw us to see you as our true treasure. Draw us to see on the cross a God worth treasuring, the only one worth treasuring above all else. God, help us to be wise in thinking about how we cultivate that heart experience, how we invest in it, how we live intentionally that actually shapes that reality of you as a true treasure. God, thank you that you love us unconditionally that if, um, if we never put into practice a single word from this passage, that you would love us still. Pray that that would provide the safety to be vulnerable with you, uh, to process, to be in process, and uh, to work out what you're working in us. So we love you, God. Would we be, would we be a church that practices generosity, a generous posture, overall plan with the resources you've given us, not because we feel pressured or shamed or want to look good or feel there's some urgent need that we're being pushed towards. But will we be free to apply this each in our own way because we see you? So on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he said, this is my body broken for you. We celebrate the broken body of Jesus, the creator of the universe, became part of our story, lived in a real body, experienced real things, real temptation, real heartache, was a real man of sorrows in our place. So we take and remember the broken body of Jesus for us. Let's take together. And Jesus took the cup and he said, this is my blood poured out for you. And we take together and we remember Jesus' cross, that his blood was shed, that every sin, past, present, and future is paid for in full. So we take in remembrance of him.
Lord, we thank you that you so loved that you gave. And um, would you help us to freely and creatively learn to be your image as people full of generosity because we have a treasure in heaven. People who have a plan, who enjoy good things in your creation, but with a worshipful heart, not looking for creation to do what only the creator can do. And who align our hearts with yours in the way that we relate to our resources. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Will you stand as we finish in worship? cast my mind to Calvary where Jesus bled and died for me I see his wounds his hands his feet my Savior that cursed tree His body bound and drenched in tears. They laid him down in Joseph's tomb. The injury sealed by heavy stone. Messiah still and all
our promise. He shall return. He shall return in robes of white. The blazing sun shall pierce the for we know what you've done for us. Even as Taylor was sharing, God, that you gave your one true treasure, Jesus, so that we could know you, that we could live in freedom and access to who you are, God. So it's out of that place of knowledge and truth that we praise you all of our days into eternity. We look expectantly for that day. And until then, God, we stand planted, firmly rooted in the truth, of who you are, what you've done for us, and what you continue to do for us. All things work together for the good of those who love you. We love you, God. We trust you and we thank you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, bless you guys. We'll see you next week. Thanks for worshiping with us. See you on Thursday. Like Brooke said, if you want to hang out at the cool kids' house, which is the pedophiles, you come to the worship night. <laughs> <laughs>